The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not take two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever you do, they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On the return, the apostles told told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors on staff. And it is good to be opening God's word together with you this morning. I add my welcome to Wills. If I have not had the opportunity to meet you, I'd love forward to doing so at the conclusion of the service. So up to this point, if you're visiting us, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and to this point, Luke has been revealing who the person of Jesus Christ really is. And over the last many weeks, we've seen Christ's divine power and authority on display in various forms. But beginning now here in Luke chapter 9, while we still see the nature and the character of Christ further being revealed, we start to see how Luke begins to tell us how the believer in Christ is to respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let me pray for us and we'll dive into this text. Lord Jesus, as we have just sung, we ask that this would really be true of us. Lord, that you would take our lives, our hands, our wills, our loves, and you would consecrate them, you would conform them to yourself. Lord, we acknowledge that this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit as you take this living and active word and you apply it to our lives this morning. Would you come and do surgery on our hearts? 
For if you would do that, we would be a changed people and we will tell others about the one who has changed us. And so come now in power, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, in one of the classic episodes of the Andy Griffith Show, Andy Taylor, who is the sheriff of a town called Mayberry, he leaves and goes out of town. And so he leaves his deputy, Barney Fife, in control. And Barney deputizes the local mechanic, Gomer. And they're walking down one evening and they see that the town's bank is being robbed. And so the two of them hide behind a car and they're scared to death. They don't know what to do. And Gomer, in his southern voice, turns to Barney and says, Shazam, we got to call the police. To which Barney, exasperated, shoots back at him, we are the police. Now, as we look out over a starving, hungry, unsatisfied world that is full of strife, that is full of angst and agony and sorrow, we might find ourselves thinking, somebody's got to do something. We got to call somebody for help. And Jesus wants each one of us this morning to hear very clearly from him. He says, you are the help. And we'll see that as he calls his disciples to take up his mission and to proclaim hope and healing to a broken world. So you have your bulletin there. You can see our outline this morning. We're going to study this passage by way of these three points. First, we'll see what is involved in taking up the king's mission. First, it involves the commission, employing God-given power to proclaim the kingdom of God. Secondly, the king's mission involves the opposition, enduring growing opposition by kingdom rivals. And then finally, it involves the provision, entrusting the needs of the people to Christ and engaging as his instruments. So first, let's study the commission. Jesus' popularity is growing more and more. And if you remember, he's just healed the bleeding woman. He's just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so he gathers his disciples together with him. And until that point, his disciples have been with him for over a year now, and they've been watching him teach and hear what he's been teaching and the wisdom that he's been pouring out into them, and they've witnessed his power and his miracles. But in Luke 1, Jesus tells us that now he's going to delegate that power and that authority that they've been witnessing from Jesus to themselves. And he's going to send them out to do, as Luke says, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal Now this is a turning point in Jesus' mission because up until now, all the people had been coming to Jesus to hear from him and to see him heal. Now he's sending his messengers, his disciples out to the people so that they can heal and they can proclaim this good news. And so this scope of his mission is growing bigger and bigger as he involves his disciples now. Now if his disciples are to proclaim the kingdom of God, what exactly does that mean? Well, at its most basic level, based upon what we see the disciples actually go out and do once they're commissioned in verse six here, it means to preach the gospel and to heal. They are to declare the good news that has come in Jesus Christ and call people to repentance and faith in Christ and to display the power of this kingdom as they heal the sick. One of my seminary professors put it this way. He explained it and said, the preaching of the kingdom of God is to proclaim the dominion of God in every domain. Or to put it yet another way, it means to bring the kingdom realities of heaven down to earth in every sphere. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so Jesus sends his followers out into the world to confront evil and bring the righteousness to bear wherever darkness reigns so that those things are overturned and renewal and restoration begins to take place. And so his disciples were to minister both in word and in deed to both physical body as well as to eternal soul. But I don't have to tell you that this is often a very scary endeavor as a follower of Christ, isn't it? But thankfully, Jesus does not commission his people to carry out his mission alone, nor in the power of our own strength. In Mark's account of this story, in Mark 6, he says that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. And in being sent out together with other disciples, their faith would be strengthened. Their testimony of the gospel would be emboldened as they went out. And you and I both know this. When you do ministry together, not only is it more fun, but you are more emboldened because of those with which you're doing it with. And so, those who have been entrusted to Christ, he says, we have his indwelling spirit residing in our hearts. And we can have assurance that as we go out in faith, all the resources we need to proclaim his kingdom that is here and the one who has come to draw them to himself, he goes with us and he gives us his power to do the mission he's called us to. Now notice the manner though as well in which he sends his disciples out and commissions them to go. Verse three, he says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not take two tunics. They were instructed by Jesus to travel light so that they were not burdened by excess. Now, when Jessica and I moved overseas to China as missionaries, we took six jumbo-sized suitcases along with us, and we had other people even bring more of our stuff over as they came later. As Americans, we don't travel lightly, do we? I learned this past week that out of the top 10 U.S. airline carriers, the revenue they make per year just on luggage fees alone is over $5 billion. See, we carry far too much baggage because we want security. We want comfort. And I think you could be argued here that Jesus is speaking to a deeper issue here when he tells his disciples to travel lightly. Instead of being self-sufficient, and seeking security and comfort, he says, I want you to be dependent. Now these are the essentials that any Jew would have brought as he lists out here. Kind of like if we brought a sleeping bag or a, a bag of clothes or snacks or our credit cards. He says, don't bring any of those. And the greater reason that Jesus is instructing his disciples to travel lightly was so that they could be fully dependent upon him for every one of their needs that they would have along the way. He was calling them to resist self-sufficiency and trust in him that as they went to these various towns, that God would provide for the generosity of those who would embrace the message that they were proclaiming, that they would not want for anything. And so as his disciples went out, Jesus wanted them to be acutely aware of their great need rather than resting in their own self-sufficiency. And his desire for us is the exact same this morning. See, the ever-present danger for you and I as we seek to follow Christ and boldly proclaim his name where he calls us to go is that we would trust in our own resources and our own self-sufficiency as well rather than in the sufficiency and the power of the one who sends us out. And Jesus knew very well that as his disciples did go out, 
that not everyone was gonna gladly receive the message that they were proclaiming. He assumed rejection would take place. And so he tells them in verse five, and whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the reality that as they went, were kicked out by the Gerasene Gentiles just a few weeks ago that we saw, they were also gonna experience even more rejection. And in Matthew's account, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. That had to be comforting. See, as Jesus calls us to go, he says, you must expect if you're gonna take up your cross and follow me, you're gonna be ridiculed. You're gonna be despised. You're gonna be canceled, as it were. And when that happens, you are not to sneak out of the town under cover of night, he said, but you are to confront those that are rejecting the message with the message. See, the gesture of shaking the dust off was what the Jews would do when they would leave pagan Gentile lands, as if to say, we're the clean ones, you Gentiles are the dirty ones, and we don't want to be contaminated. And so Jesus is saying here, as you go out into these Jewish lands, you shake the dust off to these Jews who are resting on their Jewish heritage, but yet rejecting the message of Christ. And as you shake the dust off your feet, you declare to them that they will be judged because of their rejection and opposition. To his followers of King Jesus, we're commissioned to go out in complete dependence upon Christ and to courageously, in the power that he gives us, to declare his name. It's a message that brings redemption. It brings freedom to those who embrace it and see their need for it. But it's also a message that brings destruction and death for those who reject it and who oppose it. So he calls his people to go, but he gives them the resources and his power to do it. Next, we see the opposition. The king's mission involves enduring, growing opposition from kingdom rivals. In verses seven through nine, in between the the disciples going out and them coming back to Jesus, we see Luke here gives detail about King Herod and his curiosity over who Jesus is. News about Jesus was spreading, but there was still some confusion about who he was and what his purpose was and what he was doing. And if you compare the other gospels, Luke is really sparse here in giving detail as to the reason Herod was interested in wanting to meet with Jesus. But if you go to Matthew and Mark's gospel, you read how Herod was confronted by John the Baptist, who confronted him on his affair that he had with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist's fame was growing and people thought that he was a prophet and so he knew that he couldn't put him to death. But one night during one of his birthday bashes, his niece performed a dance and he said, I'll give you whatever you want. She goes back and consults with her mom and comes back and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod has John the Baptist put to death. And so when a group of people were trying to figure out who is this Jesus, some were saying it's John the Baptist who was raised back from the dead. But Herod was thinking, no, that's not possible. Others were saying, no, it's Elijah because of what it says in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And still others were saying it was another one of the Old Testament prophets, maybe Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But Herod was unsure, and so that's why he says this burning question in verse 9. Who is this that I'm hearing so much about? Herod was perplexed by Jesus' identity. He wanted to see for himself, to know firsthand. 
Now, in other places in the Gospels, we know that Herod was a very cruel and cowardly tyrant. And Herod, who represents kind of the kingdom of darkness, he couldn't see who Jesus was, who is the kingdom of light, because he was blinded. And so in his blindness, not being able to see by faith, all he could do was oppose Jesus and persecute him. And when Herod finally does meet Jesus, as we read in Luke 23, that's exactly what he does. He asks Jesus to perform a miracle on demand for him, to wow him. And Jesus doesn't oblige. And so Herod mocks him. With great contempt, he adds and pours on to Jesus. So as followers of Christ, the scriptures are very clear to us that we should not be surprised that opposition and rejection is going to happen to us if we take up the name of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. Furthermore, the apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus himself, in Matthew 5, says they persecuted the prophets that came before you. They'll do the same thing to you. Following and proclaiming the name of Jesus will be met with opposition and rejection. But you know, too often, we ourselves, along with other Christians, we can respond in some very unhelpful and even harmful ways when we do face opposition. Many times, these fleshly responses bear very little, if any, resemblance to the responses of our Savior when he was persecuted and opposed. Typically, these reactions that we have or these overreactions, if we really look at them and, and kind of evaluate what they're rooted in, they're really rooted in fear and anger. But as Peter reminds us, he says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, armed with the sure surety of the gospel and these ironclad promises that God gives us in his word, we have nothing to fear. And you know why? Because we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus has victory. And if we're united to him, that is our victory that we share in. And so no matter what the current circumstance looks, at, looks about to us, whether it looks like we're going to be rejected and whatever it may mean for us, we know the end result. And so we can have full confidence in what Christ is calling us to because he goes with us. See, Christ himself endured the greatest opposition known to man as they hoisted him up on a Roman cross to die. He willingly subjected himself to humiliation in order to atone for sin and to bear the wrath of the Father. He endured the shame of his and our enemies by rising to victory three days later. And so Paul could say this in 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are united to Jesus and we are faithfully living out and proclaiming his name to others, we can be assured we will not be destroyed because there is nothing that can separate us from the steadfast and abiding love of Jesus Christ. We will meet opposition, but lastly, we can know there is provision. We need to entrust the needs of the people to Christ and engage as his instruments. So the disciples come back after going out and proclaiming his name and healing, and they tell Jesus all that's happened 
And as they do so, they're all exhausted, including Jesus, emotionally and physically, because everywhere they've gone, crowds have swarmed around them. And so they want to get away for rest. They're also starving as well. And it's Mark hints to the fact that this is when they found out that John the Baptist had been put to death. So they have that weighing on their minds and their hearts also. So Jesus gathers them and they go to a remote place in Bethsaida. But the word got out and the crowds heard they were going there. So they run up ahead of them to meet them once they got there. And put yourself in Jesus and his disciples' shoes. We've all been at that point of complete and utter exhaustion and starvation and all we want is a little peace and quiet. But that quiet is disrupted by a crying child, by a knock at the door, by a phone call. And we just think, Lord, please let it go away. I need to rest. Well, he and his disciples, they get to Bethsaida and the crowds are there. And I can just imagine the disciples going, oh, please, Jesus, send him away. Please send him away. And look at what Luke tells us in verse 11. He welcomed them. He begins to proclaim the kingdom and begin to show and display his healing power on the sick that are there. And in Mark's account, he tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw how lost and vulnerable these people were living under the oppression of the kingdom of Rome and King Herod who abused and used his people. And so he was moved with love and compassion to offer them a greater king with a greater kingdom that is not of this world in himself. And so it was getting late in the afternoon and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Time to shut it down. We gotta send these people away. It's getting dark. Well, they gotta go find places to stay. There's no food here. They're starving. And Jesus knew the crowd was hungry and he was gonna satisfy that need in due time. But he knew they had a greater spiritual hunger that needed to be uh, addressed first. And so notice though the disciples go to Jesus and they tell Jesus what to do. You need to send them away. Jesus is now going to use this opportunity and this problem they have of a lack of food to teach his disciples a lesson. You know, his earlier instruction to go in dependence and trust, we're given, it's given opportunity here for application. And we'll see how they respond. See, Jesus wasn't wanting his disciples to merely be passive recipients of his work of his kingdom. He wanted them to be vital instruments of that work for his kingdom. And we'll see how they respond and they miss the opportunity. Now we're told there were 5,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. And estimates here say that there were upwards of 15 to 20,000 people that are sitting on this hillside. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you feed them. Imagine how infuriating that must have been to the disciples. They respond, they say, we, Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish. And we know that from John's account. It was from a, a, a boy's uh, lunchbox. We've got thousands of people. How are we going to feed them? It would take eight months worth of wages to go find food and come back and feed these people. You've got to be kidding me. Well, in this moment, Jesus was doing something in the lives of his disciples. See, they thought that he was asking a where question. Excuse me. He was asking them a where question. Where's your faith, brothers? Where's your trust in this moment? But they were receiving what Jesus was asking them as a how question. Jesus, how are we gonna do this? We don't have any resources. We can't accomplish this. 
And just like the disciples, when we find ourselves in very challenging situations, do we not too run to the how question of logistics and budget? See, the difference with Jesus is he doesn't look at what we don't have. He looks at what we have. He says, five loaves, two fish? I can work with that. See, they were seeing through eyes, not of faith, but just looking at what they had and they'd forgotten who was with them. The one who had been displaying over and over his divine power and his faithful provision. And they doubted in that moment. Well, how often do we sense the call of God to say something in a moment or to do something by faith? And all we can think about is, how do I have time to do that? How am I gonna accomplish that? How am I gonna find volunteers to make that happen? How, how, how? And we obsess over the how. And we reduce it down to my resources and my cleverness to carry out what God's being asked, asking me to do. And the false assumption behind this mentality is that God's unable or he's unwilling to carry out his purposes and to do what we need to do, to do it in our lives through us. And what the disciples had failed to see and what you and I often fail to see as well is that when Jesus does call us to do something, he says, I'm gonna give you the power to do it and I'm gonna be with you to do it. Jesus instructed his disciples to tell them all to sit down in groups of 50 and 100 and he took these meager resources of five loaves and two fish, he held them up to heaven and asked a blessing and then he gave it to his disciples to distribute. And Luke tells us they had food left over. But not only that, that everyone ate and they were satisfied. We're not talking about taking a little crumb. They all were full at the end of it. Now, a couple of you may know the name Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut has won the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest for the last 14 out of 15 years. It happens every 4th of July on Coney Island in New York. Last year, he beat his world record of 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Joey Chestnut can eat a ton of food that could feed a lot of people. But you know he's left unsatisfied after doing so. Jesus takes a little bit of food here, feeds thousands of people. And Luke tells us they were all satisfied. Remember when God's people were starving in the wilderness? What did he do? He told Moses to have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And he rained down manna from heaven. Here Jesus supplies bread for all the multitude of people that were there that day. And in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will not hunger again. Through Jesus satisfying their temporal, physical bodies, he's pointing to a greater reality of their eternal soul being satisfied by him and him alone. The greater miracle here is not that Jesus fed 20,000 people. Jesus says the greater miracle and the greater provision is that God has supplied you with me. I am the greater and final Moses who has come. Feast upon me by faith and your hearts will never be empty again. As we involve ourselves with the mission of King Jesus, it requires that we entrust to Jesus the various needs of those that he sends us to. He doesn't send us out and say, all right, do your best, we'll let you got. 
See how it goes. Our role is to faithfully and dependently go as his instruments so that he can work in and through us to bring to bear his purposes in the lives of those which we engage. So practically, parents, this means that we are called to entrust all the many needs that our children have into the hair of King Jesus. And we are called to faithfully, humbly, to look to him to work in and through us as we point our children to Jesus, as we bring them to the scriptures and remind them of God's promises, as we model repentance when we fail so that they learn from us. But we leave the results up to him. Anything good that we see in them, we don't take credit for it. And we don't despair when we feel helpless in those moments either. Students, it means that you proclaim the gospel both in word and in deed to your classmates. You entrust the results up to God, but you faithfully model to others with your integrity how you carry yourself with the words that you use and don't, you don't use so that they see Jesus. See, this feast on this hillside anticipates a much greater feast that's yet to come for those of us who rejoin to Jesus. And as Jesus broke bread with his disciples that night before his death on the cross, he revealed that as the true king, he not only is the host of this feast, he is the sustenance of the meal as well. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 25, foreshadowing of what's to come, he says, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. We await that great wedding feast of the Lamb and the new heavens and the new earth. But while we wait, we've been commissioned to go, to tell others, to extend the invitation to those who will accept it and come and be a part of this feast with us. See, the difference between King Herod's feast is it was only for the few important. And it was a feast of sensuality that led to death ultimately. But Jesus' feast is for all who see their need of him to come and be satisfied and experience life abundant. His feast is one that will never dry up and never be left wanting. He will not withhold anything from his children. He says, I am the sufficient savior. I'm sending you out as my instruments. Go and tell of those lost sheep that they might see that I'm the one who provides for them and welcomes them to this feast. And we can do it in his strength and in his power. And when we see the results, we will give praise to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of as we look out in this world and we look at the circumstances even of our own lives, when we're left despairing, we can look to your promises and look back on your faithfulness. For you have provided for your people throughout the ages and you will not stop now. And not only that, that in the mission that you have called us to participate in, you have equipped us with everything necessary for the task ahead. May we be emboldened by the reality of your spirit that indwells our hearts. And may we go in the face of opposition knowing that victory is sure. And may we proclaim your name and your fame to brothers and sisters who need to hear it. And as we do so, we will give you the praise and you the honor. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.